This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 47. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Now, there's an old saying in business, and it also holds true in life. And that saying is, the one constant is change. And we know that is so true with technology, and we're also seeing that in sports. And there's this marrying of technology and sports that's been occurring over the last decade. And our guest, Harold Hughes, is doing just that as the CEO and founder of Bandwagon. Harold founded Bandwagon after receiving his MBA from Clemson University, where he also received his undergraduate degree, and he's also finishing up a graduate certificate for entrepreneurship and innovation at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Bandwagon was created as a sports tech company with a fan-to-fan ticket marketplace, but it's now evolving into a stadium identity data management company through blockchain technology. And if you don't know what blockchain technology is, don't worry, because not too many of us can explain it either. But Harold breaks it down in this episode. And when we met at the Bandwagon office here in Greenville, South Carolina, I knew two of Harold's passions, first connecting with people and then sports as his second passion. But I didn't know his affinity for penguins until he showed me his tattoo of a penguin. So I had to ask, why penguins? Well, I think they do their own thing because you think about it. I mean, to be an individual is really tough. And so you think about even that bird, it's like all the other birds fly, this one doesn't. And it has its own identity and they mate for life. So loyalty is huge for them. Because I think that in a world where a lot of people are doing one thing that you've not, it's okay to not do that thing, but also be comfortable in being able to do something different. And it's also okay to not be able to do everything that everyone else can do, which is a bigger thing. And so, you know, you grow up in this millennial generation that I'm in, you know, it's a really look at me comparative society. And so when you even look at the penguins, you're like, yeah, they can't do these things, but they can do these other things. And so instead of beating yourself up and tearing yourself down about what you can't do, what others can do, you know, watching your journey and figure out what you're good at and really just make that your thing. Yeah. So, so it's a sense of pride for oh, you yeah. to be that penguin. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And it's so now great. the millennial aspect that you just mentioned, right. how do you feel though, when there's times that people talk negative about a millennial generation and you know, what you're trying to accomplish? I mean, you're doing great things, but there's still this stigma somewhat from you know, oh, the older huge. generation. Yeah. So uh, yeah. how does that impact you? Well, I think it's really major. I mean, even when I started my first job out of college, it was really important for me to try and figure out like, how do I navigate a room? And I've still remember going to conferences here in Greenville where I was the youngest person by a couple of decades. And the keynote speaker would open up a joke saying, how many millennials would it take to op- uh, to change a light bulb? And they said, well, it depends on if they could find the app in the app store. And it was insane because everyone riots and laughs. And I was just like, well, this is what I'm in for today. So for me, I think that um, it'll be interesting to see not only how 
our generation deals with that kind of pressure because knowing that people either expect less of us, but also think that we aren't interested in doing more, which is kind of, you know, incorrect in a lot of ways, but also to see how we handled it for, for the following generations. Cause uh, even when you look at the trophy mentality, they say, well, millennials want things for not doing any work. Well, we didn't give ourselves participation trophies. Like our parents gave us participation trophies. So when you think about how this comes up culturally and from a generation, yeah, don't blame us, don't blame us. It'll be interesting to see um, how we handle the following generation, Gen C, as well as how we handle with the baby boomers and the generations before us as we continue to become that biggest piece of the population and contributing piece of that population. Growing up then as this millennial early on, how was your childhood and how it became intertwined with sports? For us growing up, my family's Jamaican, uh, so I identify as a black founder and Jamaican-American, uh, but I was born in New York City. And sports is really big for us because in a lot of cases, it's hard to um, – collaborate or connect with uh, other kids when you lack certain resources. So if all your kids, if all your friends in the neighborhood are going to ride bikes and you don't have a bike, you can't participate in that. If all your friends are going to a movie and you don't have money for movies, you can't participate in that. But from a sports standpoint, that was about effort. That was about going outside. And, you know, God bless me. Thank God being able-bodied to be able to participate and run around and jump around. And so being able to play sports actually allowed me to connect with people who were in different socioeconomic statuses, who were in uh, different religions and different uh, ethnicities and backgrounds. And so sports was huge to me then growing up. But as I, you know, came up into my own, I thought it was really unique in how fan bases operated. Uh, you could walk into any city or any pub and see, man, me and you were both pulling for the same team and you've got complete polar opposites. A person can be a high school dropout. Another person can be a PhD. And so it's been really important to me to be able to figure out, well, sports really allows you to throw all the other stuff and noise away. How are you able to connect with each other and how importantly, uh, more importantly, um, what similarities do you have? And so I really love that. My parents instilled that for me as a young age. Um, soccer was my favorite sport growing up and it still is. I mean, that was one of the things growing up. I remember being in Columbia, South Carolina and being really good at soccer and played um, four age groups up. I was on the U18 league playing at 14 and it was fun. But then they got to the point where they said, hey, we're going to have tryouts for this traveling team. I said, mom and dad, like all my teammates are going to try out for this team. And we looked at it and it was like $700 or something crazy. And they're like, well, you, we don't have $700. And so at that same point in time, sports connected me. But then there was also this economic factor that inter put a wedge between me and my teammates. And so you did see that there was opportunity where it allowed you to connect. But also there were have and have nots in sports leagues. And we still see that probably today with these AAU programs and traveling and all these different camps. Um, and so there was a, a little bit of... Um, uh, dual consciousness or cognitive dissonance between how sports allowed me to get connected with people, but also how it drove a wedge in between the haves and the have nots in that way. Was that frustrating to you? Oh, absolutely. I, I think about that. I mean, I was one of five. Um, I've got four siblings and the biggest challenge there was that, and I think about this as it impacts other things that I think of now is that we're allowing capital to be monopolized. And so Talent could be amazing, but if you don't have the financial capital to get you to the room or get you into the space, 
all the talent in the world won't help you. And so um, when you think about, you know, democratizing education or democratizing um, talent, it's important to me to try and figure out how do we eliminate some of these walls. And so that's why I'm starting my company in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, not in the Bay Area, not in New York City and some of these more major markets, because it's important to me to allow a whole population, a whole segment of people to understand that you can bloom where you're planted and you don't have to wait until you get to this point or wait until you have access to that resource, that there's a lot that you can do in your current space now. So I, I really lent that and learned that and brought it into a lot of aspects of my life now. What was it though about Greenville of all of the cities you could have chosen to, to live and start this company? Why Greenville? So I loved Greenville. Uh, I went to Clemson University. So I studied economics and political science there coming out of high school. So I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, expecting to go to a law school. And so I applied for economics and political science. I thought that'd give me the best background to be a successful lawyer, but as well as the information to beat the LSAT. And so I went to Clemson. I was really excited about that. And while there, uh, I interned at a great company here in the upstate and said, man, I'm going to really stick in Greenville. And ever since then, I love the culture. I love the uh, vibe. Um, I love the intentional uh, nature of the various parts of the city and the, the local government uh, to include people and, and, and embrace our diversity, as well as the interest in looking at new industries. Um, part of the uh, gift and the curse of Greenville is that we've been really good at manufacturing. We've been really good at real estate, automotive. And so thankfully, you know, we've got BMW, Michelin, Milliken, ScanSource, all these huge companies. Um, but at the same time, I saw an opportunity to carve out a new niche for us. And so with us building Bandwagon here, it says, well, if you end up being a sports tech and blockchain company in Greenville, South Carolina, how much can you change and impact the community by being the only one of those here? And so, yes, it does require a little bit of finesse to try and bring the resources you need. But at the same time, we're in a, a green space where we can define um, what we look like to Greenville and how we contribute here. Uh, obviously, it's not a bad thing that I'm only 45 minutes away from my alma mater, and I love to give back in that way. But uh, being close to there, being an hour and a half away from my family growing up um, there and still in Columbia, Greenville is the perfect place for me. And when was it that your family moved to Columbia? Because you mentioned in, living in New York. When was the transition to Columbia then? Yeah, so uh, I was born in the mid-80s in New York City, and my family actually moved to Columbia, South Carolina, pre-Giuliani year, said, hey, we're going to start a family. We need a safer place in New York City. <laughs> and Columbia, South Carolina, I guess, was the place. I honestly don't even know how we got down there, um, probably around 1990. And it was interesting because at the time, uh, I was trying to get ready to go into kindergarten, but because of the birth date cutoff, I couldn't go to school yet. I was too young. And so my parents did what any group of parents would do. They sent me to Jamaica. And I actually, <laughs> okay. uh, actually uh, I had to live in Jamaica and go to school there for a while until I was old enough to come back that next year and start kindergarten here in the United States. And I mean, it was a cultural shock for me because despite I was you know raised by Jamaican parents, I hadn't been in that environment. Um, so that was very different. But from an educational standpoint, by the time I got to kindergarten, I could already formulate words. I could already do some math. And so it was interesting to see the advancements and the intentional nature that that community in Jamaica put on education relative to what I was dropped into in South Carolina, which at the time was probably 48, 49, 50th in education education in the early 90s. Um, and so it was an interesting uh, juxtaposition where you think about there's all these resources in the United States. This little country in, in the Caribbean is really actually uh, better equipping some of their um, students for education. And so that's really how we got into uh, 
the the states and uh, growing up here in Columbia, South Carolina before moving to Greenville. And what were some of the challenges for you early on socially? I mean, did you have an accent that oh, yeah. challenged, you know, connecting with uh, younger kids at the time? Yeah, that was actually a really um, big challenge. So when I came back, I had an insane accent. I mean, I sounded just like, you know, any of the Jamaican people you'd have met on any of your honeymoons or vacations to Jamaica. I mean, I had a full accent. Kids are sponges at that age. So I just soaked it up. And so when I got to school, uh, I'll never forget uh, telling my mom and saying, mom, these kids think that I'm dumb. And she said, you're not dumb. Why do you feel that way? I said, well, if they can't understand me, then I might as well be dumb. And uh, I've carried that throughout my life. I'm a big fan of being understood. Even if you don't agree with me, I want you to understand uh, my mindset or at least my reasoning. And so uh, I actually ended up skipping recess and, and signed my mom's signature uh, to have a speech pathologist. Uh, a good friend of mine's mother was a speech pathologist at the uh, elementary school and I skipped recess and went to her uh, as much as possible to really work on my accent, work on my diction, work on my ability to articulate and our vocabulary and all this other stuff so that I could be an effective communicator. Yeah. Now, did your parents know about this? I they know did you... eventually after okay. the fact, but they didn't realize the extent of how it was affecting me and my psyche and my um, self-esteem. And so yeah. after that, they supported it. But initially my mom really wanted just me to embrace who I was. And for me, I thought it was just a hurdle to connecting. And so I was born in New York city, but was raised essentially Jamaican. I mean, my cult culturally. And so for them, they were quickly able to understand that for Jamaican and most immigrant families, education is the way out. And so you talk about all these different uh, people whose parents and grandparents have sacrificed to get them to this country. So education is the way to the, the future, you know, go to school, get good grades, get a good job. And so she understood quickly that if this was going to affect my education, it was important for me uh, to make sure I made those sacrifices. It was important for me to put that level of uh, a work in to make sure I was getting the best education possible. So they completely supported it. And from growing up standpoint, point that didn't change the fact that on Christmas we listened to reggae music instead of regular Christmas music um, and so we, we were able to have a good balance there but for me it was really really important to be very intentional and in being able to communicate effectively and it seems now that in the United States we're always looking at is sports the way out right. you know can you play sports to get to this level and that's your way out and maybe sports is the way to an education right, for a, lo a lot of people Absolutely. and so when you were playing soccer was that the only sport that you played and was there ever a dream of you wanting to play at a certain level uh no so we soccer and we ended up playing football i think in high school for four years so we I, we never thought we were going to play like seriously my entire life i grew up thinking i was going to be a lawyer from doing, you know, mock trial in middle school and speech and debate in elementary and middle school. So uh, we never thought about sports being the future. We really thought about it as a pathway, as a vehicle. Maybe you could get a scholarship or maybe you could uh, meet the right people who would be able to connect you. And so for us, we looked at sports as an opportunity to connect and be socially um, aware of, you know, your surroundings, a really diverse background. And you've got teammates and people from all over the world and all over the place. So we looked at it that way. Um, but at the same time, education was always the number one thing. And uh, I, I like to make a clear differentiation 
between education and knowledge. And so you often look at education being a really formal system. Um, here in the United States, knowledge is very, very different. And so you think about, you can get knowledge anywhere. You and I can be in a coffee shop and meet someone who gives us some information we would have never known about. And so one of my um, board members actually uh, talks about that. There is no black and white. There is no rich and poor. There are the people that know. They're the people who don't know. And so the person who knows about that tax credit that you don't gets to capitalize. And there's the person that knows that this office of you know the government actually writes grants and funds. They get the funding. You don't. And so um, it's important for me to look at, um, yes, education is important. I was fortunate to go to Clemson and uh, graduated two bachelor's degrees, got my master's, and I'm finishing a certificate at Stanford now. But from a knowledge standpoint, it, I listen to podcasts. I read books. I have magazines. I talk to people because there's a lot of things. Things that don't make it into the actual formal academic world that can really accelerate your journey and you know change the velocity of your career and life overall. Agreed. You mentioned your thoughts of being a lawyer. When did that change? I actually interned at a law firm um, here in Greenville, and I was a courier, so it was pretty crazy. I would drive from Atlanta to Columbia and back to Greenville in the same day, which was um, wild back then in a car without air conditioning um, in the summer <laughs> um, here in the South. But um, having the opportunity to be in that environment, I thought to myself, you know, the average you know age of a, a law school student was in the late 30s, early 40s, so I could always go back to it. But I had a really great experience at a local company here called ScanSource, and I had the opportunity to be an intern and then move into a sales position and product management and business development. So that really allowed me to put myself in other people's shoes, do solution selling, do problem solving. And so I really enjoyed that. So at that point I said, you know, all things being equal, law will always be there, but this gives me an opportunity to connect with people more deeply, try and help them solve their problems and really uh, work on solution um, oriented, oriented selling. So that's when I changed my mind. What you're doing now is different than ScanSource. Right. I mean, that's a big company. You're right. entrepreneurial. Right. So did you have this entrepreneurial spirit in you? Just didn't know that it was there until you actually got into a, a real job, so to speak? I don't think so. Um, you know, there's one of those things that I mentioned earlier, you know, being a child of immigrant parents is that, you know, you think that go to school, get good grades, get a good job. Um, and you've got a lot of people who go on to start these massive companies, Google and some of these other companies that turned out to be massive. But when you think about it, I was just trying to get a good job and trying to move up the corporate ladder. And I ended up getting my MBA at Clemson uh, downtown in the evening. So I'd work all day and then go to school in the evenings as a way to try and better prepare myself to be a fortune a future C-level person at ScanSource. And in my very last class, I had a, a class called Strategic Management where we reviewed case studies. And essentially, you'd say, you're Google and it's 1999. What do you do in this situation? Or you're Honda and it's this year. What do you do in that situation? And what I found myself doing was having the right answers, but at work, I wasn't able to make a lot of decisions. Um, I worked for someone and I wasn't the person at the top. And so that's when I said, well, man, if I was an entrepreneur, what would I want to focus on? And so that's why I said, well, I want to focus on sports. That's something I'm passionate about. I talked about how I think it connects people. Um, if you looked at the country, Sunday mornings are probably the most divided our country ever is between race, socioeconomic status, and religion. But on Saturdays, especially in the South, 
you've got people mixing with all different cultures, different backgrounds, all these other things are thrown out. So when the star quarterback scores a game winning touchdown, you're hugging and high fiving regardless of all that stuff on a Saturday. And I wanted to really try and recreate communities again inside stadiums. And so that's really uh, what made me make the jump um, from um, corporate America into entrepreneurship to really say, um, I could probably pull this off if I have the right guidance and the right uh, resources. And so like any good entrepreneur, I try to focus on de-risking it. So I worked on that in the evenings. After I finished my MBA, I took basically the hours that I had allocated to homework in class and worked on the company for just over a year before making the leap full time into um, entrepreneurship. And part of it's a leap and part of it was push. Um, and so it's um, great that I was able to have the opportunity to uh, take the risk because I had really done all the work beforehand. When was it the first time the bandwagon idea came to your head? It was April of 2014. I was really thinking about my Bilo bonus card. I would go to grocery stores and scan my Bilo bonus card. And I always thought, I said, man, I buy all the same things all the time at Bilo, but they never send me emails or never send me you know, notifications about this thing's on sale or you like this, you should try this new product. And so um, I started a company initially, Bandwagon, a different name, and I'm keeping that name so I may use it in the future, but it had a different name. And I said, well, what if we were able to use data and human information and put them together um, so that humans could have better information about their purchases or generally speaking, have better information about their buying decisions. My background's in economics, and so I care a lot about what people find utility in and what drives them and motivates them. I'm a huge fan of Daniel Pink um, from a motivation standpoint. And then I was unable to figure out what to do with that. And I said, well, how do you find value in ticketing? How do you find value in deciding whether to sit in the rain and watch your team get beat by three touchdowns? And that's a really unique economic experience. And, and so we looked at that and said, oh, well, I can look at bandwagon in this way. And so that's when we started to focus. Can we create a community inside stadiums to help fans you know, have a better experience and also understand why they're choosing to spend the money they're spending to enjoy the game in the way that they did? So that was 2014. Um, worked on uh, bandwagon for well over a year. Following summer, July of 2015, company reached out to me and hired me away from ScanSource, offered me a bunch of money and a bunch of flexibility. And so it was absolutely great. But then six months later, they fired me out of the blue. And that was a whole nother weird chapter of my life. Um, I was actually all within 30 days, I uh, found out my wife and I were expecting. Clemson lost the national championship. I was there. And then four days later, I was fired. So it was a pretty roller coaster ride for me between, you know, the end of December and January 15th when I was canned. And, you know, fortunately, I'd been in the industry for, you know, almost 10 years. And so I reached out to a couple people and they found out and reached out to me and said, hey, Harold, you know, I've got this position for you. You can start next week. And I had opportunities to go and work for other folks. And I talked to my wife and said, we have this much in severance. We have this much in um, the savings account. And I want to give bandwagon a full shot. Like, I don't want to ever put my family in a position where someone else is deciding our livelihood again. And so at that point, I decided that I was going to make the leap for entrepreneurship. And that was January 15th of 2016. Now, would you have made that jump, you think, if you wouldn't have been fired? I probably wouldn't have. Um, it was a really um, 
sweet gig. Uh, I was still in the same industry and I was supporting and helping people get the solutions they needed. And because of how we were set up to deal with customers, I wasn't trying to force people to buy things they didn't need. I was genuinely interested in if our product is, was the best um, for you, let's find a way to solve it. And so bandwagon was just an idea I would have worked on on the side probably forever. Um, so that's when you got kind of that push off the, the cliff and then you kind of figure out, okay, well, I'll just build this airplane on the way down. Now, were you disgruntled that you were fired? Did you oh. feel that that was out of the blue? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a big challenge. I mean, there wasn't, there was nothing to point to. I mean, I was so caught off guard. Um, I was hitting all of my metrics. I was performing uh, above my peers and it was completely... Um, did they ever give you a specific reason? Not one that was real. They gave me a specific reason. And, you know, for them, it's, it's been, you know, you know, good for them. They move forward because at the end of the day, if they don't want me as part of their team, that's a culture thing. And so when you look at something as crazy as that was, as well as my great years at ScanSource, myself now as the CEO of a company, I'm able to figure out how to be a better manager. And I'm able to figure out how to create better company culture because that kind of thing just can't happen. You'll lose talented people if you're expecting them all to look the same way and to think the same way. And so when you have a person like me, which I will admit that I'm a person that by default um, likes to question things just so I can understand the ins and outs of them. Uh, if I hand you a sheet of paper and say, go repeat this to everyone you talk to, and someone asks you a question that's not on that sheet, and you won't have the creative thinking skills to say, oh, well, this is why we're making this decision. That puts you in a tough spot as a person who's on the front lines. And that's really what my job was. I was on the front lines. So, yeah, a lot of times I think it's important to kind of push the barriers of why do we make the decisions that we do. And I think that really better suits me as a CEO of a startup. And so what are some of the lessons that you learned through that process that now you're able to uh, apply um, here with bandwagon? I think that the number one thing that I focused on is expectation setting. Um, expectations make every relationship, um, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business partnership. And so having the right expectation actually allows you to really understand what you're going to get from that other party. And so taking that into a startup, I go into every one of our hiring uh, meetings. And as we built out our team, we know it's going to end in one of three ways. Either they're going to quit because what I offered and promised them isn't what I'm delivering. Either I'm going to have to fire them because what they said they would do and commit to, they aren't delivering on. Or three, we're all going to get rich and have a great time um, together. And so you kind of go into each of these experiences saying, this is going to go one of three ways. Let's try and um, figure out how to best manage that. I was listening to a podcast called Masters of Scale. And Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, was interviewing Sheryl Sandberg. And she talked about um, how she and Mark Zuckerberg's relationship really uh, made the most sense. And one of the things that they do, which I loved, is that they agreed to what the rules of engagement were going to be when they had a disagreement or when they had to make a decision. They didn't agree to how the outcome would always be, but what they agreed to was the rules and set it basically expectations on how they would manage differing opinion, conflict, any of the decision making so that every single time, whether they you know were on the same side of the table or on different and opposite ends, they each knew what to expect on what the process was going to be and coming out of it, they could leave on the same page. And so I think that from an expectation standpoint, it's really good to know and set those kinds of boundaries. And once again, that's something that I learned, you know, in a podcast outside of the four walls. And I think that allows you to really um, be a better leader than you were probably the day before. 
before. What other podcasts do you listen to? Oh, I'm a huge podcast person. Um, so Bootstrap VC, which was actually put together by one of our investors, Backstage Capital. Um, this Week in Startups, um, which is Jason Calacanis, um, major angel investor, where he actually talks to the companies as well as um, investors. And so for me, being here in Greenville, it's a cool look into the Bay Area of what's actually happening in the high growth space of startups. Um, Masters of Scale, as I mentioned. And then I'm a huge Gimlet media uh, podcast person. So they have startup podcasts where it was super meta. He started a podcast about starting a podcast company. And so recorded himself, you know, making every decision from bringing on an investor to naming the company. And so that was great. And they most recently have a company called or a podcast called The Pitch. So it's The Pitch Show, which is almost like Shark Tank, but in a podcast form. But they give you a lot more behind the scenes than Shark Tank would and do follow up so you can see, you know, do deals go south? Did investors actually commit? And then what happens once you go and do that? So I'm a huge podcast person and also Audible books because that allows me to uh, basically you know drive and fly and I'm able to, to multitask in a lot of ways like that. So huge podcast person. Now looking back at what you're learning in this position, a CEO of a startup company, and getting your MBA, do you look back and say I'm learning more doing what I'm doing on this on the job real world training than I ever did? through my MBA and through my traditional education. I definitely think that. And I think that you've got to look at how the world was formed and how education was formed that, you know, before you had academia and before you had the MBAs and all these other different degree programs, someone had to figure out how to do it. At the same time, you think about the speed of academics being able to prepare curriculum for the world and the industries that are being created. So if you think about Tesla and Richard Branson and what they're doing with uh, space travel, there probably weren't a lot of uh, degree programs that would prepare people to work in Tesla or SpaceX and some of these companies. And so um, it was important to just figure things out. Um, so at the same time, I love the fact that I was able to be in the MBA network and another uh, notch and deeper into the Clemson family. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's a healthy balance between making sure you're in that room, learning the hard uh, sciences and making sure you're getting the baseline information, but also figuring out the soft skills and failing and trying and learning and then redoing the entire thing in that fly loop. As you look back, also going back to the time that you're fired, you make that decision to start bandwagon. Is there some extra motivation because you were fired to prove those people wrong? to yeah. be successful in this and well, yeah. what else motivates you well, to be it, successful? Well, going, growing up, it was a lot of, um, motivating me the most was a lot of people saying what you could and couldn't do. Um, was saying, you know, the fact that I have this accent growing up, wasn't going to allow me to be the best student or a guidance counselor in high school saying that I wasn't going to be able to make it out of Clemson because in my very first semester, I had a 0.87 GPA because I took the wrong courses. I didn't know how to study because it was a very big difference between high school and college and um, really had to figure out, you know, going from there, going and making Dean's List almost a half a dozen times in the next seven semesters. So proving people wrong was a big motivator. But I think as I grew and have gotten um, more mature, it is more so trying to figure out how to carry people and prove people right for believing in you. And so that's really another motivator. Um, I have a son now and I think about uh, the fact of, you know, what is he going to be able to look at his dad as? And so you think about, you know, an 18 month old, uh, they probably don't remember any of this stuff. You know, I don't follow all the science behind it. So I don't know when their memory is really good and starts, but I need to set a good baseline for what they remember you for. And then on top of that, make 
thanking uh, my parents, the fact that they came here and tried to take a shot and give, give us this chance, making the decision they made and the risk they took worth it. Um, the investors that we have making the risk that they took worth it. And so making sure that we um, have people who are believing in us and supporting us, making them um, right in the end. And so I really want to focus on how do we change the idea that people are only able to do certain things and give you certain um, things in life. And so I look at this as, you know, if I tell people I go to Clemson 95 times out of 100, they'll ask you if I played football. And I understand the optics of why you would think that even though I'm 5'10", um, but I understand <laughs> the rest of this. And so at the same time, you say, okay, well, at what point do we shift this and say, oh, you went to Clemson. Mom, did you go to their engineering program? Did you go to their business school? Um, and so you're trying to figure out ways to break down these um, preconceived notions of what people can accomplish uh, by democratizing access to capital, democratizing access to education, and these other resources that, that help people accomplish things in the world. And did your parents ever talk to you specifically why they made the decision to come to America? No, not specifically. I mean, I'd imagine that when you think about from a resource standpoint, um, my parents each had, you know, seven, nine siblings. And so coming here was going to give them opportunity. Uh, my dad, by trade, is an electrician. Um, and so my mom now has a care uh, facility in Columbia, South Carolina. So she takes care of the elderly. And so it's been great to see um, that they have run through walls, regardless of what challenges and obstacles they've had. Um, right now, I'm in an accelerator program in Austin, Texas. And I've got to commute back and forth to see my family. And that's a big challenge. But as I was preparing to make that decision, I thought back to when I was a kid and we were living in Columbia, South Carolina, and my dad would live in New York City, work all day, drive straight through the night on Fridays, get home Saturday early afternoon, and then stay with us Saturday and Sunday and then leave on Monday morning um, to go to work again. And that's crazy. I mean, yes. that is insane. 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 And so to see that he made that sacrifice and that my mom, I think at the time there might have been three of us um, to make that sacrifice. Actually, there were probably four. Yeah, there were four of us to make that sacrifice. It says, well, we can do this. Like, I can do this. Like, they did all of these things to give me the opportunity to fail and screw this up. So I've got to at least give this to my best effort. And so that's the kind of thing that I think is is giving um, them making the decision to come here gives us the, the opportunity to do this. I can only imagine just seeing your dad doing that, what an impact it has had in your life. And maybe that's where you get your energy and your drive to be successful. Yeah. I think about that because, you know, part of that, you know, you growing up having a relationship with your dad where you don't see him as much for that, you know, probably a year or two where he's doing that, that's a challenge. And so you think about it, you say, well, what can I do now to lay the groundwork for my family and for my son and provide? And so that's really, really important to me. And so that's been impactful because you think about the path that you can take or the path that you could create. Um, and so sometimes people take the options based on what's on the table. And sometimes people say, I'm leaving the table. I'm going to make my own path and do something different. And, um, I've been fortunate to have the support of family and close friends and uh, fraternity brothers, loved ones to be able to say, Hey, if you fail and screw this up, it's okay. I've, I've joked around you. Know, I'm 32 years old. I could lose it all. And that's okay. Cause you can restart. Um, you see all these different successful people who didn't start becoming, you know, Oprah wasn't Oprah until her mid forties or whatever the little, you know, infographics say, and, you know, Steve jobs didn't become this until then. So you've got time. Uh, but I think it's important to be intentional in your effort and making sure that you take your shots when you have them. 
I'm 46 and started a sports podcast. Exactly. And I've had awesome guests on there that I'm, I'm happy to be fortunate to be following those up. And the fact that we're having this conversation really speaks to what you can do uh, when you actually take that risk. And I think that is one of the most important things. And I, and I want to make sure to say that is that one of the things in starting startups, especially in a non Silicon Valley area is that a lot of people think that, man, a 30% success rate is terrible. Well, if you're batting 300 in baseball, you're probably going to go to the Hall of Fame. Like the, you're, those are great numbers. But in Greenville and some of the parts around South Carolina, if you said, "Hey, we're going to make 10 investments, seven of them was going to are going to fail," are you okay with that? A lot of people aren't happy with that. They'd run up in their money in real estate or something that's a little safer in bonds. So we want to say it's okay to make these risks as long as they're calculated, as long as we're learning from them. So um, if, you know, when this podcast comes out and we're doing well, great. And if in some years bandwagon goes and becomes a raving success, fantastic. But if it doesn't and things go left, I also want to be very public in how, well, what happened? Well, what went wrong? And be What'd able to learn say, from what it? did I learn from it? So that the next company can actually come behind and say, okay, this is a big challenge. This is something I'm going to need to overcome. This is a resource that may be lacking. Because if we're, you know, if we're able to make these mistakes and learn from them, that allows that next group, next generation, next opportunity to have a better shot than we did. At this point then, what are the biggest challenges that you faced and that you think you will face with Bandwagon? My biggest challenge so far has been uh, getting the traditional uh, nature of how business is done. Uh, these folks who have built relationships on business and uh, legacy accounts where it says, uh, I have an exclusive partnership with this company um, to consider a solution like ours. Um, our solution uses blockchain technology, um, which really focuses on decentralized ledgers. And so that's the difference between you having a database and me having my separate database to us both collaborating in a separate database that neither of us owns. And so when you go into a school um, or a team that's you know got a really long, rich history, they're not all that excited about saying, wait, so I don't own this and this isn't controlled. And so my biggest challenge has been the education of that mindset. Um, next would definitely be fundraising. Um, as a first-time entrepreneur that doesn't necessarily come from a lot of means or have a network that um, has a bunch of money sitting around, we had to start from scratch. We started close friends and say, hey, I want to tell you what I'm working on. Do you know anyone? And then do you know anyone? And do you know anyone? And so fundraising has been a big challenge. I know that uh, one of the things people say is, man, if you were in this area, you'd have gotten money for half of what you've done. But I think that's part of why we're here is to show that um, when I talk to students at Junior League or going back and speaking at the Men of Color Conference or, or Nesby, to be able to tell these students, you don't have to leave where you're at. Because I think that really sends the wrong message that um, – you can't accomplish what you want to because of where you are. And that is something that I really am working hard with my team, with my board, with my investors to say, well, let's figure out the best way to do this efficiently. Cost of living makes a lot of sense in Greenville. Uh, there's a lot of talented people here in Greenville. And so we think about this of, um, yes, these are challenges, but how do we use the challenges to uh, help us overcome and really build a, a battle-tested startup um, that's able to weather the storms that we will and have faced? If those are some of the challenges, what are some of the biggest successes that you've had that you really didn't realize was going to happen as fast as they did? Well, I'm fortunate uh, to have been um, connected with some folks as I came out of corporate America and really said to be 
a startup entrepreneur and to be a founder, I have to actually immerse myself into it. And so I went to entrepreneur events and I read entrepreneur books. Unfortunately, I was able to get mentoring. Uh, one of my uh, biggest investors, um, I was actually introduced to him through a mentor. And in our first meeting, you know, halfway through it, he asked me, so let's say that this all goes completely right. Let's say that everything goes as you expected, which is an interesting question because most people don't normally ask that. They say, well, what happens if this goes wrong? That's right. Well, he asked, well, what happens if this goes exactly as you planned? What do you want to do after this? Or what does success look like for you? And I was very candid. I said, I grew up um, not having all the means that I probably would have wanted, but my parents worked really hard to make sure we had what we needed. Um, and then sometimes that was the power being off, but the light being the, the water being on uh, or the water being off and the power being on. But I would work really, really hard with every ounce of my time, resources, energy to help people and students and families who are in those situations realize that uh, their circumstance doesn't have to dictate what they can come become. And I would really focus on that. And he said, that's exactly what I'm focused on. We both talked about it. Generational impact, being able to change uh, the trajectory of an entire family's lineage. And so in that moment, he wrote me a check for $50,000 and we're sitting in a Starbucks and I'm trying to play it cool. And it was amazing. <laughs> um, and he says, this is a $50,000 check today. I'm going to write another one. If we hit these milestones and since then he's been able to bring really, really great value to him, uh, to my company and to me as a person. Uh, he's a man of faith and we're able to share the different visions that we have of how we can create that impact. And so that isn't supposed to happen. Like that is a huge win that changed the trajectory of everything. And then since then we're able to get into a Google program. And so if your name and brand are aligned with Google, that helps the trajectory. And so we have Google for entrepreneurs as a backing for us. Um, and then with the Stanford certificate program I was doing, I got connected at Stanford and then they came in um, for over $100,000 and invested. And so it's really been all of these little um, things that aren't supposed to go this way that did. And, you know, when I could sit around when things aren't going as great and say, well, why me? You've got to really say, you'd have to say, why me for all the great things too. And so that's really the mindset I look at is that, you know, when things are going bad or aren't going the way you expect them to, you can't say why me because there's so many things that go right and you've been blessed and you don't say why me in those situations. Um, and so we've been really um, fortunate to keep a level head, never get too high, never get too low as we are approaching um, funding or strategic customers and partners. And so that's the type of stuff that we're really trying to fuel off of and continue to build on. I'm a firm believer of never get too high, never get too low oh, yeah. and maintain that balance Icarus all day. That's right. And you mentioned faith. Is faith important in helping you maintain that type of balance and be able to, you know, face this adversity that you might see at times? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think about, you know, the, the challenges and roadblocks that I had even growing up. Um, you know, my, my siblings and I joke around, you know, there were times where I remember one of us could go on the field trip for the year. So we're all in school and each class has a field trip and only one of us could go or some type of thing would come up and it would completely derail your plans. And, you know, I was actually just reading uh, an article the other day. My younger brother um, runs a financial literacy nonprofit. And it was interesting because he started it because he had the worst financial habits ever. He had been evicted. He had had his car repossessed. He'd had bills cut, cut off and he'd had, you know, collections accounts. And it's like, man, I didn't grow up talking about money at the dinner table. And we weren't taught about, you know, savings and IRAs and investing. And, you know, I just read an article the other day that said the average American, if they had a $400 bill that came out of nowhere, they would 
wouldn't be able to pay it. And so if I think about how we've been able to do this, I mean, I constantly talk about it. 2016, the year, the word of that year was survive. 2017, um, we were really focused on, okay, how do we start trying to get some momentum forward? From an economic standpoint, there's no reason that my wife and I should have been able to live in the house we live in, afford daycare, afford food and energy, and occasionally going out for dinner. There's just no way from a math standpoint. So faith is huge, and you know, there's nothing but God that I think about in those cases because the math just doesn't work. And I think that, you know, that's the most important piece is that if I looked at the math and looked at where we should be, um, you know, there's always that saying is, you know, I don't look what I, I don't look like what I've been, been through. Um, that's really important to me. And I think that, um, the more that I can look to that and say, there is another path to this and there's someone else walking with you. Faith is huge to me in that way. And so, um, it's been interesting. My, we grew up in uh, the way we grew up, and I got in a corporate American, made a bunch of money, and was able to travel. And so from a perception standpoint, it probably looks like things are great, but I know how hard it is to go home, and there's nothing in the fridge. And I know how hard it is to go home and say, okay, well, this bill is going to be late, but I've got to pay that one. And those are things that are happening in you know, 2016, 2017 as a you know, startup founder, you know, dad, husband. And so definitely faith has been able to carry us and protect us and cover us. And um, we've got praying friends, we've got praying family, and it's really been able uh, to help us stay, stay covered and blessed in that way. So absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's just another way of connecting faith and sports oh, yeah. that are two of the main ways that a lot of us connect. Oh yeah. Um, and so when you look at, you know, how faith has been able to help you out, what about sports then the life lessons that you might've learned playing sports, just being around sports, how is that impacting your journey as a CEO of bandwagon? Well, I think from a sports standpoint, it's been important to know that, you know, the job doesn't always uh, go to the person who's probably the most talented. Um, we've probably all seen it in different cases. Um, and it's also important to be ready when your name is called or when your number is called. Um, for those of us who watched the national championship game um, between Alabama and Georgia, they had a true freshman quarterback that got called in the second half, and he led his team to a national championship game. Um, a few years ago, Cardell Jones did it. Um, so you're able to see this type of a thing. Um, so really studying your craft is important and being ready so that when you have the opportunity um, – you can make sure you take the most of it. That's really been big. But also the importance of knowing that uh, you contribute a piece to the success of the whole. And so you think about um, a team player or a person that's knows their talent and knows their skill, knowing what you do on that team. Uh, you think about the 90, you know, the nineties bulls where they had Dennis Rodman. He knew he was going to be the rebounder in defense. He didn't have to hit threes. They had another guy for that. And they had another guy who was going to lead in points. And so it was interesting to know that from a sports standpoint, and I love to look at those types of analogies as saying, you know, I'm a big fan of specialization. I think that that's when we're most efficient and saying, I'm going to do this. And if you're going to do that, that together we can accomplish more. And so, so leveraging sports and, you know, whether it's hiring or leveraging sports and how we're going to approach uh, subjects and customers, it's been important to us on how we manage the company as well as how we manage our expectations of what success can look like. So you're in this journey. What are some of the words of wisdom or advice that you've received that has meant a lot to you that you lean on at, through your journey that you would like to share? The, the number one thing that I, I would like to tell folks and focus on is collaborate. 
and collaborate often. Uh, all too often, you have entrepreneurs that say, hey, I'm working on this really great thing. I'd love to tell you about it. And you say, great, cool. Tell me what you're working on. And they say, yeah, can you sign this non-disclosure agreement first? And you say, whoa, what is this? I mean, you, that's like showing up to a first date with a prenup. And so I really think it's important to encourage folks to, you should be able to speak to what you're trying to build and what you're going to build without getting into the legal pieces of this. So yes, down the road into conversations, I completely believe in protecting your intellectual property. But at the same time, I think it's important to be really, really transparent on what you're working on so that you get people to the table to help you. And that's exactly what got us um, so far with bandwagon in the beginning. Uh, I came out up front, even while I was working in corporate America, posting on Facebook and LinkedIn saying, hey, Hey guys, I'm starting a ticketing company that's going to help fans have a better game day experience. Let me know this about your experience or that about your experience. And there were countless times where a person who I may casually have talked to, a person who was just a Facebook friend who we never talked would say, hey, I just saw this article on ticketing. Have you seen it? And people would send me stuff. And you can imagine that. Imagine collaborating with hundreds and thousands of people who are technically using their intellect and their brain and their time to work for you. Because that's really what you're getting out of that. And so I think it's important important to encourage that collaboration um, effect. And so being transparent on what you're working on. The last thing I'll add to that is being okay with making a decision to go in a different path. When we started out, we created a ticketing company that was essentially StubHub, but with a membership level. We wanted to allow people to protect home field advantage by flipping a switch. And that was the initial premise of what we were going to build. As we tried to get those customers, we said, hey, we surveyed 3,000 customers walking around um, the campus. I was with Joel uh, Carbon from Ideal Seat, one of our partners, and we're walking around surveying with a bunch of student interns and saying, hey, what would make you use our platform more? And the number one thing we got back was, could you tell me if I'm sitting next to my Facebook friends? Can you tell me if I'm going to be sitting in a family-friendly section? And we went back and said, man, to do that we'd have to know every person who's in the seats and that create this narrow network. And so we went back and said, well, maybe we can build that. And that's when we said, we're not going to build a ticketing company anymore. We're going to build a data company that focuses on stadium identity management. So you're, you've pivoted. Absolutely. And that was a conversation we'd have with our investors, a conversation we had to have with our early employees and say, Hey, I think this is the pathway forward because the market is telling us this. And we're going to use an unproven technology in that space in blockchain. And we had investors that said, are you sure about this? And early employees that said, well, is this the best way? And we said, yeah, I think it is. And it was okay to take a risk and see if it played off. And, you know, we looked at the math and said, this is going to cost us more money. We're going to have less money throughout the case of this. And said, yeah, but I think it's going to be good for us in the end. And now, you know, we're one of, you know, less than 200 companies building on uh, IBM's blockchain worldwide. Um, and we're the only one building in this ticketing space. And so we do see the future of uh, event ticketing or live event access being controlled in a blockchain type solution where we're helping teams understand who actually walks through the stadium so that they can provide personalized and curated experiences for their fans. And now we're having more conversations with, you know, national championship caliber college programs, uh, professional teams in the NFL and other sports leagues. So now it's like, oh, that risk that we took in changing our mind and changing our strategy is paying off. And so um, it's important to, you know, be deliberate once you've made a decision, but also be calculated and when to take a risk and say, it's okay to 
you know, pivot or change your path because you think that now you have more information than you had before. And that's the challenge that you have often with entrepreneurs is you're being presented daily with new information, but you still want to hold course to the original thing. And it's important to say that decision that I made back then was based on the information I had back then. Now that I have this information, it's okay to make a different and better decision. And um, I've been happy to have done that. And I'm hopeful that more entrepreneurs will embrace that type of a change and see that pivot. And we're not the first ones. I mean, Slack started out as a video game company. Um, Twitch started out as like a uh, reality TV company. And so you see these huge companies that start off as something else, but made a slight pivot or a major pivot to change into the actual breakout success that we've seen companies have. And we're just hoping to be in that same um, caliber um, in a few short years. Now, want to make sure that I'm aware of your time. We've almost been an hour. Do you have time for yeah. one or two more questions? Sure, absolutely. Okay, perfect. Going back to blockchain, how do you educate people that are not in the technology world, so to speak, of what blockchain is? I leverage um, existing uh, architecture frameworks that we all have growing up. And so um, you could imagine um, two students in the same class who are writing notebooks as the teacher is giving information. So the teacher is talking at the chalkboard. Two students are keeping their own notes. At that time, one student A has a set of notes, a student B has a set of notes. And some of the information they have may be the exact same, but odds are there's going to be kind of different. And so what we find is those are how currently databases operate. They're very separate, they're very siloed, and they don't talk to each other. And so what we've seen is the opportunity to create a shared ledger or a shared document. Students are now creating you know, mass uh, databases. I've seen classes who say, we're going to create one big Google document that allows all of us to type into the same doc. Now we all have the same notes and I may have picked up this thought from the teacher and you may have got that thing from the reading. And now the database is more rich at the same time from blockchains uh, components. You're able to see who wrote what, when did they write it? Were there any edits and how these different things change? And so from a database standpoint, that's really what it is, is providing transparency into who's doing what, having a record of when things happen, and it's immutable. No one person can make a change, and you're able to see, okay, this is more uh, perfect information than we had before when we were siloed, when we had exclusive agreements. So how is that being utilized then in what you're doing with Bandwagon then? Yeah, so we think about this from a standpoint of, Sports teams have season tickets. Uh, when their season ticket holders order their tickets, the teams send thousands of tickets out to individuals all across the country. The challenge with that is, in a lot of cases, that those tickets can be resold on sites like StubHub, Vivid Seats, uh, and there's no real visibility to get back to the team on who actually is walking through the gate on game day. So, you know, as a high-level technology standpoint, if I get barcode one two three in the mail from my team and I resell it on StubHub. The database says, hey, database, erase one, two, three. That's no longer eligible. Four, five, six is the number you should look, look for. So you show up to the gate with four, five, six. The team doesn't know that you have the ticket. The team knows that four, five, six is present. So if you think about that from running a business standpoint, especially an event like this um, for sporting, there are a lot of things that you're missing out on if you aren't able to cater the experience to the individual. So imagine your food and beverage sales are declining and you're like, man, I don't understand. We are in the middle of Texas. We've got the best beef in the country. Well, you don't realize that more of your fan base is becoming vegan. 
and you're really saying, well, that's why you're maybe missing out on revenue. Or you say, man, our season ticket holder database um, says that, you know, 72% of the people who walk through our stadium are men, but you realize that your merchandising sales are down. Well, it turns out that it's actually closer to 50% on game day, and there are more women in the stadium, and so you need to order more smalls and mediums of your unisex um, clothing and maybe cater to a unique audience. And so from a business standpoint, we're seeing that uh, teams are missing out on the visibility of who's actually showing up, and that leaves on the table the opportunity to make them a better experience to get them to come back. And so that's really what we focus on from a technology standpoint. Being able to watch as a digital asset moves from one person to another and then tying that digital asset to the demographic information of the person who actually walks through the stadium to provide a better experience. And also then to be able to provide a better marketing experience as well. Absolutely. So you're able to be able to target and do better marketing as well as better services. And so we really focus on that being the crux of it to where these teams are able to operate better revenue standpoint and the fans are getting something that's unmatched that they can't get at home. So eventually it could be a win-win situation for both parties, the fan and what you know, the stadium or the sports team itself. And we actually think the third uh, player in that is the ticketing company. Right now, if you get a ticket on StubHub that ends up being fraudulent, StubHub has to do their money back guarantee. And they say, hey, Rich, we're really sorry about that. Here's your money back. Well, you wanted to take your son to the game. You didn't want your money um, back. You wanted to be inside that stadium. And so with our blockchain solution, the team's actually, or excuse me, the ticketing market's actually able to check and say, hey, this guy named Harold just listed this ticket. Is it real? Yes. Do they have the authority to sell it? Yes. Okay. Are there any restrictions on this ticket? No. Okay. Transfer it to Rich. But when you look at some other things you can do with our technology, we say, is this a real ticket? Yes. Do they have the authority to sell it? Yes. Are there any restrictions? Yes. You can't resell this ticket for more than face value. Okay. Now you've been able to do some price control or you're not able to resell this ticket in bulk quantities because now you have brokers buying them to scalp them and resell them. And so there's lots of different things that uh, the blockchain allows us to um, utilize from a technology standpoint, but it really just goes to support the business cases that already exist inside of these spaces. You think about it, the NFL has eight home games a year, eight days out of 365 days to pay the note on the building. College football has six or seven home games a year, in a lot of cases, to cover the entire athletic department budget for a year because there's non-revenue generating sports like women's volleyball and men's rowing and lacrosse. So it's important to say, man, how do we get a butt in every seat in this stadium during college football season or NFL or NBA so that we can run at a better economic position so that we can hit the goals that we have? And so that's really where we say, yes, this is enabling technology and a lot of cases the people we're talking to don't understand exactly how it works, but the key is they don't have to. We have to see what does this allow us to do and what does it enable us to do um, along the goals that you have as a business, athletic department, or a professional team. How would this potentially affect what you mentioned, ticket brokers themselves and how they typically will buy these tickets in bulk and then they're reselling them. We expect that you're going to have more fans being able to transfer tickets uh, themselves to other fans uh, to minimize the effect of brokers who are scalping tickets. Uh, you understand the, the broker relationship between the teams exists for a very clear reason. The team wants to sell as many tickets as possible because your season can go as unplanned and you want to be off of that inventory and recognize revenue. On the other side, because of the relationship, the broker says, hey, because I'm bailing you out for that one awful game on the 
season that I had to buy, I get this hot ticket that I'm going to make four, five, ten times my money. And that's just the way this business relationship works. What we expect to do is, yes, brokers are going to still be able to participate in the relationships that they have, but we're able to minimize fraud. There's a big difference between you know the ticket brokers and the scalpers who are ruining fans' experiences by selling them fake tickets or tickets that are completely overpriced and have to be corrected in the market. So we really see that as an opportunity um, for multiple players in this industry to use data to enable them to meet the business decisions and goals they've already set. I, I think it's fascinating, Harold. And um, I, I know you've got a, a lot of work to do, but I know you're excited about it. And I can't thank you enough for spending the time sharing your story, your journey. And I know it's a long way to go. You got a, a lot to do, but I greatly appreciate you being on the podcast. I appreciate it, man. I look forward to uh, hearing future episodes and, and really supporting anybody uh, that that's really looking to learn. I, I, I want to be as much of an advocate for the startup community, uh, people of color, uh, women in entrepreneurship. So I'm happy to help. And I'm glad that this is opportunity to tell a little bit of our story. After spending time with Harold, it just reinforced the fact that you can follow your passions, but sometimes it's not always a certain pathway that occurs. And usually this chain of events that happens that both pushes and pulls you down this pathway, as Harold mentioned, it's not always positive. Sometimes it is a negative event that creates this inflection point. And obviously Harold had to go through that difficulty of being fired, but he was able to use that as motivation and maybe even some of a catalyst to trust his abilities through his faith and take that leap of actually creating a sports tech company and becoming an entrepreneur as he founded Bandwagon. And he's also now been able to make a pivot within the company. So it's truly evident that he understands that the one constant is change. Now that finishes episode 47. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 